Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Film Snobs. I'm Jared Kloffenstein. I'm here with Caleb, Ricky, and Ethan. We've got a very special first time for the Snobs today. A few months ago, we watched the documentary One More Time with Feeling, and I'd encourage all of you to go watch that right now, or and then listen to that app for all the details about the film, because we're going to talk about more with it, because over Zoom, we have the editor of that movie, Shane Reed. Shane's worked on everything from a Terrence Malick movie to a Taylor Swift music video, and he's now a partner at Exile Edit. We're happy to have him here. How's it going, Shane? Where are you at right now? Oh, great. Thank you guys so much. I'm doing great. How are you all doing? We're great. I'm good. You're probably the biggest guest that we've had on this show. So <laughs> yeah. we're all a little nervous. Yeah, we've, we've Exciting made it we've stuff. Made big time. <laughs> well, I'm nervous too, because no one talks to editors. So you don't, you don't hear me editor. <laughs> anyone, so. we're, we're here to change that. Yeah, yeah we're changing it. <laughs> Uh, so just for a little context for all of you, um, every week we like post to Instagram and always try to tag people who have worked on the movie we watched. And every now and then we get likes. Like one time we actually got Tom Cross, another another editor. Sure. Uh, but Shane went a step further and was kind enough to listen to the episode. And then he messaged us about it. So after a couple back and forth, we realized he's a cool guy. And that he agreed to an interview. So, I'm also a rad dad, which fits. Are you a rad dad? Nice. How many children wow. do you have? I have two. Okay, how old are they? Uh, they're seven and five. They're both home with COVID, so I, maybe I'm not doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> so yeah, for uh, but yeah, I reached out because um, well, I haven't I haven't really heard anyone discuss one more time with feeling besides the one we had it come out so it was really interesting to i mean that's kind of one thing i love about instagram is that you're able to tag me in it and you can immediately like sort of have access to it but hearing you guys pick the film up later on discover it i one of or two of you maybe saw it when it came out i can't remember if, but you know you guys were discovering it later and discovering nick even later or that album even later and you know I, when i talked to andrew about it the director like you know, neither of us have really heard anyone discover the film out of context of when it was coming out. You know, when it was coming mm -hmm. out, it was also fresh and raw. Here you are years later finding it. So I think just hearing it was pretty fascinating. You guys were, you know, incredibly thoughtful and had some really great takes on it. And that's why I reached out. It was cool. Love it. Thank you. Honor. So before we even, I know we're going to talk about the movie a lot because yeah. that's what we love at least. Sure. Uh, Tell us a little bit about just you as a person. Simple. Simple. Uh, simple yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> uh, well, I live in LA. I, I'm an editor. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a partner at a company called exile edit. We are um, kind of just a full on post suite. We cut everything from films to TV shows, to commercials, to, uh, music videos it just sort of depends um there's quite a few edit shops out here that do the same thing and spread around the country it's mostly in new york and la and london that has the bigger markets but you have like chicago and detroit and places like that but yeah you're just kind of like operational edit suites that are just full of sort of creative people and depending on the relationships you get or you have in your life you sort of incorporate that work into your uh 
into your shop, which is very much the origin story of One More Time of Feeling and my relationship with it. Um, So I do that. And yeah, I came out to LA to be, uh, I was involved in comedy, actually. I I was kind of doing stand-up at the time. And I came out to LA doing stand-up and improv and sketch comedy. And I, um, I didn't like it in LA. And you just sort of really come out. I came out with no plan. You just kind of pick up odd jobs and I'd be cutting things together for our comedy shows or whatever. And, and every time you start to get involved with people, they just sort of ask you what you can do. Editing was the only thing I knew how to do and I didn't really know how to do it. So I'd sort of teach myself on the fly. I was like really not afraid to just fail. Hmm. So I would just say yes. And then I'd panic on the inside (laughs) (laughs) Nice. and get my way through it. I I think I, I still am the same person, uh, but with a lot more armor, I guess. That makes sense. Cool. Right Who's next? He answered a couple of our questions already. Ricky, I'll let you go. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I guess you just mentioned like you're editing a little bit. And so I'm just going to, I guess, interested if you have like a general editing philosophy when you approach a project or if that's largely just dictated by the project, like, you know, each piece at a time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, do either of you guys edit? Do you guys do anything do you work? Yeah, I, he, do he does it. Yeah, I do editing. Yeah, for a, a nonprofit that I work for cool. here in Colorado. Great. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, I I didn't realize until I I didn't realize editing was a was a profession. Really, mm-hmm. um, I just realized when I got here and started to do it or see people in edit suites, their own their own edit bays. Um, that I got, that was actually my interest my whole life. But I just been had done things from like. I kind of missed film. I'm too young for really cutting on film. I didn't go to film school. So mm-hmm. I, everything was very, you know, VHS to VHS or I always remember it was a really hard, hard to find out how to sort of get rid of the VHS scratches in between each edit, you know, the like, all right. <laughs> and it wasn't until I think I saw a friend in high school shoot something and I saw the first editing program and saw those little like bars connect. And I was like, that's how you do that. Okay. <laughs> I've, uh, and I still have that philosophy. I was always impressed by that. And I was always working on it without knowing I was working on it. Um, and I guess like for my philosophy, it's kind of c- the same thing is continuing with me the, for me now as to when I picked it up, I'm just, I, ke- I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. I am very fortunate to work with, really impressive directors and whenever i approach a project now i am always really happy to be in very like safe smart hands and um it's not up to me to overpower that part of the job it's not up to me to overpower that film it's up to me to to support it support the director uh find the director even if it's commercial to a film like find them at some point in it where we're locked in together and then everything we're doing is in tandem with trusting one another and and continuing to build whatever it is we're building and just being honest about how we feel um so i kind of go into everything pretty open you know and and working commercials you go to everything two weeks at a time usually so i've exercised that muscle like a lot over time to just be sort of an open vessel to it absorb the dailies um it's a little bit different if you're doing film, but with a commercial, you yeah. just sort of absorb the dailies and you start to make up in your mind what it is that you're going to do. Ideas start to come out over, over time and over practice. 
Um, but, and, and you can, you can quickly see, but you're, you're object, you're, you're an objective point of view as an editor. So as soon as you take that in, it doesn't matter what was intended for the day, what was shot for the day, what the script notes are for the day. You just sort of start to feel what that film is and what it needs. And, um, and then you go in and you extract that and that's kind of your job. Wow. That's great stuff. So with, with this, uh, film, it's, I think it's interesting that it's a documentary as well. It's not just like this traditional film. So how, and when did you get involved with this specific project? It's funny. Like if you ask me if I want to cut a documentary, I, I know <laughs> I don't like, uh, I don't want to say I don't like documentaries. I find, I think documentaries, I have friends who are documentary editors and they love it. They love to have no script and build it and have control like that. I just, um, it's not my cup of tea. And I feel like a lot of documentaries suffer from not really having a third act mm -hmm. and you're just in there trying to make it. And it's fine. If you want to do that, it's just not my thing. This one was a really strange way. So our company is, was opened by a few editors. Kirk Baxter is um, David Fincher's editor. Oh. Uh, Eric, Eric <laughs> Brennan, who unfortunately passed away a while ago was Spike Jones's editor. Those guys came in and started this company along with, um, some of their other partners that had been at other uh, uh, commercial houses coming up. And um, we had another editor named Connor O'Neill. Connor is an editor for Bennett Miller. One of oh, his yeah. And Fox so, catcher. <laughs> and he, so Connor had done a commercial with Andrew and Kirk's Australian and the Australian pool is very tight. That community's tight. And, um, I think one more time with feeling came in through the front door, uh, with sort of a, I guess this is something they do in the UK, which I've never seen, but they'll record sort of a one night only film for like an album release. And it's kind okay. of like if you're a fan, you go see this film for one night and it's an hour. And I, I guess they're not that great. Cause I haven't heard <laughs> of them, you know, and at the beginning of this, that was the intention of it. It was like, this event had happened. None of us were really personally connected to it. And the idea from what, when I first heard of it was it's going to be a film that is going to be all the tracks of skeleton tree, Andrew Dominic's directing it, but it's going to be black and white. It's going to be in 3d and it's going to have a little bit of interview in between the songs, but it's mainly about the music. And I think all of us collectively were like, cool. We love, we love Andrew. We all admire his work and, um, and we all greatly admire Nick's work. And so we thought, you know, this could be something that like the company does. I was going to do a couple videos. Eric was going to do a couple videos. Kirk was going to do a couple. And Connor was most interested in the documentary part. He'd cut uh, murder ball and he did some films with Henry, Henry Alex Rubin. And um, so he was kind of like, I'm interested in that part. So we had a, we had to kind of kick it off. And schedule-wise, it was just me that was going to do it. I was sort of wow. newest to Exile. Whenever you get dailies as a commercial editor, you are everything's moving really fast, and you're screening dailies while the director's shooting it. And you're, and you're it's very common to jump on the phone and just talk to them, and be like, "I've already looked through this and this, and what are your ideas?" and et cetera. And you, your your motor should already be going. I hadn't had any experience cutting a film. And that was not what my intention was with this. I thought I would just come in and start it. So I very much did that. I just started looking at things. And I remember Andrew called our office and I was like, Hey, uh, 
yeah, I started looking at stuff and it looks really beautiful. And, and he was so mad. He was like, <laughs> he was so furious. Like, who are you? Why are you looking at my dailies? Um, and I didn't realize the preciousness of it at, mm. uh, with a film director like that, just because I was coming into it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's slower and you shoot something and you sit down together and you watch it and you start, to, you know, and you have a relationship sometimes, sometimes you don't. Um, so Andrew and I came into this like total sort of clashing people and he was just stuck with me for about, I don't know, three weeks, maybe that was our plan. <laughs> and in those three weeks, we cut together uh, essentially the first act of the film, which was all of the opening through, I think we did it all through Jesus alone, uh, which is the first track we play. And it was about 20 minutes or so. And we, we were just kind of like, all right, I guess this is where we stop because they shot, they only shot three days. So we, we cut that together and then Andrew went and showed it to Nick. The response was, you know, like, I think he was quite blown away by it. Mm -hmm. And he saw it in 3d, he saw it in the theater, you know, and, um, and then Andrew came back and was like, look, I think we both realized like we'd been butting heads and we'd been not trusting each other, but what we did and what we crafted together was actually quite beautiful. And mm -hmm. that, maybe we should just continue down this road together. So everyone else didn't really want to be involved in it at that point. Everyone was totally cool handing it over. And, um, and he and I just continued, like they went and shot eight more days and we cut the rest of the film together and it went on for about four months. I think we cut it. Wow. Hmm. Wow. So, so you and him, I, I know very little about, the filmmaking process, the crafts. So do I. So, <laughs> so I. So you said they they filmed over eight days. So during those eight days, I think eleven. Like, like, are you getting that footage at the end of the day, or is it like at, they shoot it all and then you get it, or how is that all? Yeah, we. This one was. Uh, I think if you're shooting, like, say you're doing. Um, uh, licorice pizza or something like that. You're probably shooting and you're what you're screening the dailies maybe per day. Like maybe you're just screening a couple scenes to see if you got it or you need to shoot. So you films can move like that. This was different. I think this was a completely different approach for Andrew and we were finding our own way to, um, to not make it feel like it was a film, right? It's mm -hmm. like, it wasn't like, all right, the studio is involved and we're shuttling these drives over and da da da, and we got to get it through photo cam. And, um, it was like a much more intimate project. So it was almost like, uh, Andrew was there just collecting things with Nick and, uh, his DPs and, and then coming back to it, coming back with it to me what was crazy about it. I don't think you guys have seen it in 3d, right? No, we haven't. The 3d is like, the way to see it it's, Man. it's really really beautiful um it's i mean the photography is beautiful but the 3d component to the photography that was like developed by benoit is like it's just stunning and wow but we had to screen all of it in 3d and andrew is really like persistent on that because there's things that you don't notice in the film there's just the way dust moves or light moves through something that in three in a 3d space was entirely different so we actually like screened everything and cut the film in 3d wearing 3d glasses like wow yeah that was one of our questions what? i'm like did you actually edit it in 3d you did yeah we did and i would like lose wow. my mind because my monitor wasn't my mo my monitor is in 2d so i'm like staring at a 2d thing with like, <laughs> 3d glasses on then i have to look to the client monitor to see 
what I needed to see in 3D. So wow. everything I was doing was sort of like looking to one side of the room while doing it in front of me, which was very against my uh, own like uh, muscle memory. And but screening in 3D was insane because we'd screen like 12, 13 hours of footage, and I'd have like these like really lucid dreams because my my brain and my eyes were like messing with me, right? Like, wow. Right. Huh. Hours and hours at a time, which, you know, if you, you could watch a 3D film for two hours, but doing that for like 12 hours a day for like three, four days was insane. Trippy. Wow. <laughs> really trippy. Um, so you talked a little bit already about like uh, your collaboration with Andrew. Um, and I guess it, with directors in general, do you kind of let them take lead and you just do kind of whatever you follow them at all costs or is there room for you to provide input? Um, and like, what did that look like with Andrew? Was he open to your thoughts or was it like Andrew's way or the highway? Yeah, not right away. Not at all. Um, if I presented something to Andrew, he'd, uh, sit, he'd stare at a wall and just look like he wanted to kill me. <laughs> and he would question like my judgment, you know, it was really terrifying. I don't think he's ever heard me say this, but like, is just a very intimidating person is incredibly smart. And what I realized over time, and this is not untypical. Uh, it, it's just that you have to learn to trust each other and it, it becomes a really intimate space. And I only say that because where Andrew and I got to was a really beautiful place of trusting one another and, um, and being one step ahead of each other. And when you get to that point, you can start to assert yourself and you can, and you're not suiting yourself to be combative. You're just asserting, asserting yourself because you're just saying like, I think that this is important and I think it's better with it. And maybe you're thinking this way and you're, you're just, you have to be each other's audience. And we got there pretty much like almost halfway through the edit where we started to really like move in tandem. And then we respected each other's points of view. But until that point, uh, especially with Andrew, you're like, look, you're in charge. You're, you're not that you're in charge. You're, you're leading the way right now. You see something through the forest that I don't see. And, uh, and if that, if that's the case, then it only makes sense for me to be behind you and support you mm -hmm. and kind of move with you and move through your ideas as an editor. You're just a lot of times in, the, in that very beginning stage, they have ideas that are cranking and you're just like, trying to keep up with that so that you're knowing which avenue to go or not go down, you know? And with this one, it was such a bizarre entrance into the film because time was just like obliterated in the opening with Nick. We, we made a point that time doesn't exist anymore. Everything is sort of stacked on top of each other. So you start editing all these things in a sequence and you start realizing like, a linear timeline doesn't make any sense anymore. So anything is open. So Andrew in that capacity is just like, he's brilliant and he sees, and he has these big ideas. And it wasn't until halfway through the film that maybe or cutting it, that I could start to see where he was going with it. And then mm. start to like lie on ourselves, you know, that makes sense. Wow. Wow. Awesome. So with that, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely not the traditional narrative times, not linear. So as an, as an editor on that film, working with the director, how, when, when were you sure, okay, this is something that works and it is something that doesn't, since it's not the <clears throat> traditional sequential way of doing things, how did you know when something 
really worked? Um, it's a good question. I, we did, we cut the film in two paths. So there were originally two, two, like four and a half hour edits that were two separate films. What? Um, wow. One of them was to, you know, basically like what's happening in the film is they're recording um, skeleton tree. And then you go to visit, you know, Nick and Susie in their home and all of that because of the sequential days that you shoot, it has a very linear layout, you know, it's studio time. We're walking into the studio in the morning where Nick's going to record some vocals. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And so that became a film. Just what happens if you, do a completely linear timeline of the events. And then you can see where um, the interesting parts of uh, creating an album are, where the tension exists, where, um, where there's insight into Nick's inner self while he's sitting around waiting for everyone to get their shit together. Excuse me. Uh, my language while we're waiting to get it together to, um, to record something, which is a painful process that he doesn't love anyway, but he's also dealing with, something really 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 deep inside and so by laying everything out you can start to see where the interesting parts are mm -hmm. sort of similar to like the the new beatles doc that they did get back yep. like you just sort of lay all that out and you go okay these bits of conversation are interesting this song is interesting and then you try and find a way to mash those together uh the other part of it was a like a very poetic abstract edit which you know falls in line with some of the things that you guys talked about, about, uh, I was, it was incredible. I don't know how you know all the things that you knew about the film, like <laughs> Nick's recordings or how we did that. Like, I don't Google man, I guess like just Googled like, everything, interviews or something. <laughs> like I don't, it's pretty amazing. Um, but the way that that all went down, we can get into that later, but Nick would have these musings or these poems or these song lyrics or things that Andrew asked for. And we would essentially just take those and, lay these really beautiful sequences out, which were of the sky or of bedrooms or of houses or of just light or traffic or anything like that and start to sort of pour dailies over little bits of poetry. And that was really fascinating. You had this really, really, really fascinating film that didn't really make any sense, but it, it was just like gorgeous and haunting and, um, and fragmented nothing made any sense because the time was you weren't doing anything that was linear you were just doing things that were sort of beauty based and then it was just about finding how to put those things together how are we telling a story of of an arc of recording something to an arc of songs to an arc of nick's life and and this and, the, and his process along with telling a story of like the process of making this film and you just sort of like put all of it into some sort of shape and it would just be you know it's working or it's not working when you're writing each thing to the next song. The songs are always anchors. And if you were going into the song not feeling something, you knew that you were off. If you were coming out of the song into something else and not feeling it, you knew you were off in the way that you started that new segment. And it would just be mm -hmm. about putting those anchors down, you know, building a structure, but then allowing it to just sort of be poetry and time and images stacking on top of themselves over the course of the 90 minutes or so that it exists. I'm curious, do you have like a, 
uh, a favorite sequence from the film in that regard as far as you know coming into a song feeling this way the song and then coming out the other side of that yeah um i think the my i think i still feel like the strongest part of the film <clears throat> is the um all up into jesus alone i feel like the bits of um nick talking about losing his iphone and losing his voice and sitting at the piano as he's working out the keys that he can't remember and the notes that he can't remember and that bit of confusion and frustration in him leading into that just that first hit of jesus alone and then coming into that really like whoa i've just teleported into this really dark and sad space and because of the strength of that beginning you go into jesus alone like loaded with questions and feelings and and that song i think i think i think that always felt like the 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 first 20 25 minutes of the film always felt like it it sort of said everything that it needed to about the film you know the rest of it sort of deals with the aftermath of what that is but that's because that was recorded first and that was the most raw and vulnerable and protective everyone was and that's what made it ultimately um i think a powerful film right that's yeah, yeah it's interesting that you find the setup the best because i rewatched it a couple days ago like paying attention to what was where a little bit hmm. and i was super fascinated by the fact that in that opening that does set everything up perfectly there's that conversation about or that voiceover about the prophetic nature of songs mm -hmm. and it's almost tipping us off to the fact that listen to what's in these songs because there's something here mm -hmm. and it made me think is there anything else either in that opening or somewhere else in the film that was similar like we're subconsciously when i watch it the first time i didn't realize that that quote would make me see the rest of the movie differently even though it did is there anything else you guys did there that i might not have picked up on specifically in that opening or in the rest of the film anywhere um well i think the opening is strong as well because it was a choice to to open on warren in the cab um mm -hmm. and to see the camera break apart and to see them on the side of the road was all really real uh that you're gonna see everything for what it is and that what you're seeing is something that you maybe shouldn't be seeing you know and i think that that's just a tone for the whole film i think it's a line that we had to walk doing it but you know it, it really really felt like you're making a film that is really precious and that you're really protective of and you're really protective of the people in it and you don't want to you're very you're very protective of how you present them and and what they say and and how they come across and i think what i what i love about that opening for, just for me personally is that i didn't know nick personally uh i barely knew andrew personally going into making that first chunk of film but when i was screening those dailies i was um constantly crying because uh the weight of what was happening would just keep hitting me and i had my son and i was my wife was pregnant with our daughter and um and so uh, 
I just feel like sensitive as an editor and I just don't feel like you can get into cutting many things that, that you can feel that protective of, you know? And so I think the, the way we opened that up felt like it was very raw, very real, uh, very honest about what was happening. And I appreciate that the film uh, was allowed to do that because we didn't have anyone in the way of it. It was just us making it, you know? Did you see, I, I saw an interview where he said initially after he saw the film, he was very angry. The whole film. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how do you, uh, <laughs> how do you respond to that after you spent so much? Yeah. What was your response to when you, when you hear that? He was going to watch, he was going to come in and watch the film and he'd only seen the beginning and it wasn't, he wasn't angry at all. Um, I think that it's just like, how do you go in and watch a film like that? Yeah. When it's mm -hmm. your experience. I mean, I think that in a way, maybe he was and always was struggling to understand what the point of filming this thing was. And I think it was just really painful for him to watch it, you know? And yeah, he would, he looked very upset when he, when he, and Andrew and I were just sitting around as he and Susie watched it. And man, it's just like heavy. And he's totally allowed his space to feel that, you know, and uh, we allowed it all that to just happen the way it happened. Um, but you mentioned some other things about him taking things out or something, right? Like an Andrew wanting to keep things in. Um, I think what I read or I listened to an interview with Andrew and he said they had that discussion early on where Andrew said, if there's anything you want to take out, you can, but then he ended up not yeah. taking anything. He ended up being okay with everything. Yeah. He ended up not because, um, you know, the big, the big thing that really came up was the ending of the cliff. Um, mm. And Nick was very of the mindset uh, that, no, you can't, we can't, you can't do that. I don't want to see that ever again. Um, and Andrew, you know, this is where they were really amazing together. Nick and, and Andrew, they have an old relationship and they clearly trust each other, but they're, you know, they're dealing with a very sensitive thing. And I think there's a point where, it's Nick's story. And then there's a point where it's Andrew's film. And, and I think that they really respected each other as artists in that way. And, and Andrew's point was, this is the film. Like, this is what it is. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're talking about. And he could understand that Nick just was having a reaction to what that physically was. And, and it, I, I think he was expecting it, you know? Yeah. And he didn't say no. He just said, you know, think about it. And we did try a few other things, but none of them felt as imp as impactful because they weren't, there's a sort of funeral ending to all of it, right? When you see that place or something like really prophetic about visiting the space visually. And it's just this like rock and it's really haunting. And it lays it to rest in a way, it, the film at least. And I think that um, they showed it to Warren 
Warren was really the final eyes on it and mm. thought it was just really powerful. He just said to Nick, like, it's, you know, it's gorgeous. And, um, and it's everything that it needs to be, I think, you know, and, uh, and he was okay with it. And then ultimately Nick started to see the film. He saw it one time, I think. And he said, I think he said that it was like, he never wanted to see it ever again. He was like, like, um, it was after it was finished. Yep. Um, and then he had such an, an incredible relationship with the fans and people that were dealing with their own sense of trauma, which kicked off many things for him and changed a lot of his life. Um, that he then saw the film for what it was and, and was sort of blown away by, uh, the power of it, you know, but he needed to get past that, not get past it, but he needed to, f to face it, which was, yeah, you know, a very brave, brave thing to do. Well, uh, yeah. So we talked a little bit about the voiceover already, but, um, Nick kind of the voiceover goes throughout the film and he's almost kind of like guiding us as the viewer, um, yeah. in editing, was that like difficult to know when to throw voiceover over dialogue or when to let the voiceover just kind of have its moment or yeah. What was kind of your, your process in deciding where to place, uh, that voiceover? Yeah, there were a few, <clears throat> there were a few um, different examples of it. So like you got like um, Steve McQueen is I think a song. I think they're lyrics from a song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, like, um, it's like a poem. Yeah. You would get lyrics like that or, or a poem like that. And you would find a place that was interesting to support or lift a scene that it made sense with. But then there were scenes where Andrew would call Nick and say, you know, I've got this segment of you. Um, in the studio, you're pissed off. You have to record vocals and just tell me about that. Just what does that mean to you? You know, and Nick would just riff on something and send us something. And then that would be very specific to that scene. And then you'd sort of lay the VO in and cut around it or weave the VO into the fabric of what was already there in the dialogue. Well, I guess going off of uh, what you just mentioned, I noticed, uh, I also rewatched it recently and noticed like there's a lot of cuts to black and was just kind of wondering if that was more of an intuitive thing or if there was like a specific like reason you were doing that in the edit. It was, uh, it was just um, like stark, you know, it just, uh, it kind of made sense for the film. The film feels so fractured and, you know, we did, I, I didn't know when we were doing the audio recordings, if you we were going to like pick those up and make them better quality. And even when we mixed the film, it just sounded terrible. And we went back to what was in the Avid. Um, it, the, the edits to black just felt like these sort of jarring chapter endings um, that left you with something. And my intention actually was for them to be longer. Um, what I had learned about also cutting a film was that you, cut it in reels and the reels are placed together in this very specific way um, when you're doing a feature and we had not done that properly. And so there were chunks of the film that would have had three or four more seconds of black to just let you sit with something mm -hmm. that picked up almost right away. And it was incredibly frustrating, but it was one of the things that I just had to go like, that's what this whole experience is. It's not what we're intending it to be. And maybe that, there's a reason that that was so fast. Hmm. Um, and you just accept it. You just accept those blemishes as you go, you know? 
What else you got? Oh, I got tons. How much time you got? I'm fine. Man. You do your, you guys do your thing. I'm just going to close this window. You guys can uh, record what you want, and then um, if you want to cut stuff or whatever, like I mean, I've I've got nothing that's worth cutting yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you know how many uh, hours of footage you had to sift through, or like how how do you even choose? You just because like I know there's he's got his voiceover about how life's not a narrative, but it seems like you structured this somewhat narratively. Yeah. Um, well, I think you have to, uh, you know, Nick can say those things and believe those things. But when you start getting down into like sort of a tactile filmmaking portion, you, you, uh, or craft, you, you have to try to make sense of it, you know? And I don't think the film works if it doesn't have some sort of structure to it, even though you're trying to, display in a film that time doesn't exist narratively, which is mm-hmm. hard. Um, I don't know how many hours there were. I'm not sure if I can remember why something worked or didn't. We, we didn't have a ton of footage to throw away. There weren't big scenes to throw away. It was just more like, well, this is a section where the soundboard isn't working and Nick is just sitting there waiting to record vocals. And that's just not interesting to this story. Um, so you would chop, you know, you just, you just toss certain things to the side and you just really honed it down into what, uh, again, what, what you could ride. Editing is so much like being on this, even if it's like long form, you've got to be on this roller coaster that you're riding. You have to, you have to stay on it. And what was interesting was we did something to the film. I can't remember at the end, we, we did something and we, Andrew and I watched it. And, you know, we'd always look to each other at the end. He'd be like, what'd you think? And I'd be like, I don't, it was, it was terrible. Like it just fell apart for me, you know? And, yeah. and like right near the end, we had some stuff that we were messing with. I think we was trying to get more like crafty with filters and we were cutting stuff in and I film burns or I can't remember what it was, but I think we got a little distracted by the 3d mm-hmm. and um, we watched it and he was just like, I don't, we don't have a film. Like, it's just not, it doesn't work. And I have to call Nick and, I'm going to have to tell him that we just don't have a film because we actually had a release date. We had a release date that we had to kind of hit, I think for whatever the production company was to put it out or because of the whole like limited release thing in the UK, like we actually just had a deadline. So Andrew was like, I have to call him and tell him that we don't have it. And then we went in and we, we like lost one shot and we, and we changed one dissolve or something like that. And we watched him. We were like, it's great. Like it's done. So it's like weird. It's weird how, that ha- it's just that's how fragile it is like you you have to keep trusting it no matter how many times you've seen it in edit room so you just watch it and you just know if you're emotionally invested and connected and moving and you know when you're like i don't know where i am anymore i've lost it and mm-hmm. i've lost the thread and um that's what you're trying to figure out the whole time really and that emotional connection that like because for me i said this on the pod and i've it's for me, probably other than Showa, like the most affecting documentary I've watched. And that when it cuts to color, that song as a man who wasn't at the time, like a big Nick Cave fan, yeah. that song and that cut to color and the lyrics of that, it's probably, I think it's the most I've cried ever watching something in a yeah. movie. Was it a conscious choice to have that? Was that color the whole time? Yeah, that was did- Andrew shot that in color. And he just had that idea i think i don't really know why 
Because, uh, like, to me, emotionally, it made complete sense. But, yeah, yeah. up here, I, I don't know if I can a bit of, I think there was a bit of hope to it. I think that's where the film turns into something that um, has some sort of an idea of light at the end of this dark tunnel. And, you know, Andrew's just a really big, I think he's a Nick Cave fan first before he's even his very close friend. He just, and I think a lot of Australians are, I think they're very connected to their artists and, um, you know, just as many, many filmmakers um, that I know who are Australian all, you know, pay very close attention to everything that Andrew does. Andrew feels that way with Nick. And, um, and so I think Andrew really understands those tracks and really understands uh, what the lyrics are doing and what the, and what the song is doing. And I think, I think he knew that enough about the song to treat that differently when he shot it. Cause everything else was shot black and white. And that's just like bold. Andrew's just like, you know, to, want to shoot a documentary like that in 3d black and white is just a crazy thought and and it's not going to work all the time but he has really big ideas like that and uh so that's that's part of what i was talking about earlier about sort of following a director like for him to shoot that in color he clearly knew something ab about that section was going to change the way you felt in the middle of that film and and he did it and he didn't do it for anything else so I don't know. that's all i can say about it really i don't I don't know if we even really talked about why it was color or not. Yeah, it felt right. Yeah, have I didn't question it. Have you seen Blonde yet, by the way? I have seen Blonde. I have seen Blonde. Okay, that's all I'm good. I know I can't get anything else, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you work on Blonde? Or are you working on that? I didn't cut Blonde. The timing didn't work out. Um, <laughs> my good friend Adam Robinson cut it. He cut Spring Breakers and that. Uh, <laughs> Man cut a few other films uh, and they, it's great. It's just, I can't really say anything about the film. No, um, <laughs> I did, I cut, uh, uh, while we were on this, actually we cut um, tests that he did with four actresses. Um, and we cut, we cut a few scenes together and then I cut together uh, when they first tested on a, um, there's a cut I have, that's like five minutes long. That was just basically like, um, a camera test, light test thing. So they had different wardrobes and uh, different eras and just, and the, you know, Chase, the DP and Andrew just, we were just on a stage and they were just shooting her for a day. And then we just cut together something that had her music. And I think it was just for Netflix. And then, uh, yeah, the timing of doing that film didn't work out. And when they were uh, in the first third of editing it, the pandemic hit and um, that just would have been, really difficult for me because I had two little kids at the time of it and um, it would have been really hard. So I think uh, ultimately it was just one of those things that wasn't meant to be, but. And uh, I'm going to shift to another project real quick. Cause we're all um, Malik fanboys, I guess you would say. Sure. Like to me, he's my favorite director sure. maybe ever. Um, so you, you worked with Hank Corwin who yeah. cut some of his stuff. And then you're also on Hidden Life. You did what did you do on that on that film? Hank, I assisted very briefly uh, at his edit shop when I was coming up. Um, I learned some good lessons from Hank. He's funny uh, <laughs> and really smart, um, but I didn't know him that long. Um, uh, Terry, I met 
through Andrew, when we, when we wrapped the film, he just called me one day. I was like, he's like, Hey mate, Terrence Malick's going to call you tomorrow. And, you're gonna <laughs> call you. and I was like, huh? yeah, it's awful. I'll try an accent, but, uh, <laughs> Sounded spot on to me. I used to be able to do Andrew really well. We were in the Bay, but I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's terrible, but, um, and incredibly offensive to all Australians. <laughs> But, um, he, yeah, he was just like, Terrence gonna, is going to call you. And I was like, okay. And, uh, yeah, sure enough. I just get this call. I think I was dropping my kid off at daycare and I saw the number and I was like, I feel like that's Terrence Malik. And just this like really sweet voice message. And I called him immediately and I sat on this curb and he's just like one of the kindest people you could imagine. And, um, it was just really lovely. And he had a commercial that he was doing and just asked me if I would cut the commercial uh, so I met him and cut the commercial with him. And then, uh, I think it was the first time I worked with him was on, um, what was the film before hidden life? It was, um, song to song. Song to song. Yeah. So song, song to song. I think what he did was he essentially asked how I would cut it down. He gave me a quick time of a much longer cut and I would just sort of give my notes on, um, what I thought could be trimmed or, you know, moved. It was quite long. And, um, and then a hidden life started the same way. He, he asked me, um, you know, I have a five hour cut. Um, would you come to Austin and check it out and, you know, let us know how you cut it down. So I kind of did what I think Soderbergh does for people. And I just basically took the quick time and just lifted chunks out of it and mm-hmm. got it to about two and a half. He, he was like, how could you get this to two hours? So I just like, move big things around and sort of cut it together for the editors to look at. And then I did some trailers for him. I just kind of worked with him a little bit on the film. And then I would come in and work on a few scenes, um, just kind of in and out. I, I just, I couldn't go to Austin that much. And, um, I'm usually pretty busy commercially. So I would kind of float things in between. Uh, but I probably did like a couple months on it. Um, and then I just, um, did some more scene work on his new film right now. I don't know the name of it, but, uh, he did the same thing. He, he's very experimental with editors. He has lots of editors and he, and they have different, they just have different points of view or different uh, ways to go about things. So he likes, I think he likes with me, like that uh, a, a lot of the world that I work in is very fast and he likes to create some sort of sense of rhythm in his pieces that get a bit, that he feels get a bit slow or get a bit lost or, um, or just meander too much. And so he gave me sort of like nine scenes out of context and just said, not knowing anything about this film, like how would you go into these sequences and just bring them to life and, you know, make them move like a river. And he has these wonderful like analogies of like, it's a river and it's flowing and the water's trickling through here. And then it comes out the other end and it's a waterfall. And, you know, you're like, great. Sounds great, Terry. And then you go, (laughs) and then you go do it. And it makes total sense what he's talking about. It sounds very lofty, but you get it. He wants, um, poetry and rhythm and, and movement. And, uh, that's something that I do, I think, well, that's a different muscle than some of the editors he works with. Cause those editors work for like three years on those films. You know, it's a long time. Um, I can't really commit that, but, uh, but it's a lovely relationship that just sort of, we talk to each other when we need to, and we work with each other from time to time. And, uh, I'm very lucky. Wow. That's awesome. Super cool. That's incredible. Um, so he's as, sweet, he's as sweet as you can imagine too. I remember going to Austin, he called me the day before and he was like, 
Shane, you know, he's asked me something. I was like, yeah. I was like, what, what's going on? Is everything okay? He's like, I just wanted to make sure you're from Los Angeles and it's very cold here right now. And I just want to make sure that you have a jacket or something that you would bring with you. And you don't, I have Aww. one here. And I'm like, good. I love you, man. Like, so <laughs> <sweet>. it. <laughs> very, very generous, uh, very warm person who is full of just exploding with ideas all the time, you know? Wow. That's awesome. Love it. And then um, last question for you before we uh, stop this recording, at least. Sure. Um, what are you most excited about that you're working on now or have worked on that you got, you've got coming out? Yeah. Uh, actually, I have a short film that I did with another Australian director named Michael Spitcha. Um, <clears throat> and that will probably come out in the festival circuit this year. It's like 22 minutes. Um it's a really cool, it's a really cool coming of age film in the eighties, uh, really has a really incredible soundtrack and some really talented people that did it. Um, it's, um, it's called I'm on fire and, uh, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's about a boy it's sort of, it's all shot on 35 millimeter and, and period. And, um, and it's a boy sort of coming up in a very toxic masculinity, uh, filled house. Um, and, dealing with his own demons while dealing with um, a father who eats all the space up and uh, makes his life very challenging. And it's uh, about him sort of trying to save him and his family from what that toxic energy is in their life, but learning uh, by the end of it that um, he's, got to lie in this bed for a while longer and live with what it is. And, uh, so that's really, it's really, really beautiful. Um, wow. it's really well done. Um, I think that, and then, uh, Super Bowl ads, man. I got one that I started looking at today. That's going to be really cool. I can't talk about it right now, but, uh, yeah. that'll be fun. Um, but that's it. Everything's pretty short term, but, you know, uh, there's lots of directors that I work with and lots of things happening all the time. And every year brings a lot of uh, amazing opportunities now. And I'm really lucky for that. So um, we'll see what continues to come, you know, but that's all I have for now. I don't have a film in the works. Love it. Well, we're keeping an eye yeah. on you. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> we'll be watching. Well, that wraps it up with Shane, at least for the recording part. I'm at asking a question or two of <laughs> Off the record, but thanks for listening. Go watch one more time with feeling as you've heard us talk about for two hours now. It's a mass modern masterpiece of documentary filmmaking. And thank you for your time, Shane. Love this. Thank you guys. Yeah, this was okay. great. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, my pleasure.